Hello, and welcome to A History of Japan. Season 7, Episode 10, The Rise of the Mongols. Before we begin today's episode, I want to take a brief moment to discuss pronunciation. While it is not possible to obtain perfect pronunciation for the many different languages represented in this podcast, I've always striven to get as close as I can to the correct pronunciation. An astute listener informed me that I've been mispronouncing the name of the ruling house which governed Korea throughout the 1100s, which I was referring to as Goryeo. Romanization varies wildly between East Asian languages, even those as geographically close as Japan and Korea. A closer pronunciation is Gorya, which I shall be using from this day forward. On the note of pronunciation, you may have noticed the recent trend of calling the first great Khan of the Mongols Genghis rather than Genghis. If you watch the television show Marco Polo from a few years back, they favored Genghis because that is closer to the original Mongol pronunciation. His name, or rather his title, was spelled with a G because the English learned the name from the Italians, whose G is usually pronounced like a J when it appears at the beginning of words. With that out of the way, let's learn about the life and times of Genghis Khan and his successors. Long before he was the ruler of a massive Mongol confederation which conquered its way into an empire, the man history would remember as Genghis Khan was a young boy named Tumajin. In 1171, when he was nine years old, his father, the chief of their tribe, was killed after being poisoned at a wedding feast, and his tribe refused to recognize Tumajin's claim. He and his family, which included his mother, sister, three brothers, and two half-brothers, were cast out of the tribe and had to fend for themselves. For six long years, he and his family had to live off the land by hunting marmots and other small game, gathering wild fruit, and working together to survive. In 1177, however, their encampment was raided by a rival tribe who seized Tumajin and enslaved him. The clever 15-year-old gained the sympathy of one of their guards, who helped him escape captivity. The incident marked young Temujin as clever and persuasive. In the ensuing years, he would offer his services to more powerful leaders of Mongol society as a commander of fighting men. Being of noble blood, he was eligible to marry the daughters of powerful Mongol leaders, which he did throughout his life quite liberally in order to consolidate power. After reuniting with a childhood friend named Jamuka, he began leading larger and larger contingents of fighting men in varying circumstances. Mongolia in the 1100s was a smattering of feuding confederations and shifting loyalties, not unlike China during the Warring States period. This gave Tomujin plenty of opportunities to excel on the battlefield and befriend the most influential Mongol leaders. He swore to fight for Togrul, the Khan of the Karaites Confederation. Tumajin famously led 20,000 Karait soldiers to recover his kidnapped wife, Borta, from the Merkit Confederation and won a mighty victory over them. Tumajin's early years were full of drama and betrayal. Political differences emerged between himself and his friend Jamuka. While Tumajin preferred a meritocratic system, Jamuka was extremely conservative 
and favored upholding the existing Mongol nobility. Tumajin's popularity swelled after his victory over the Merkits, and one shaman even prophesied that the eternal blue sky, a deity in Mongol Tengriism, was placing the world under Temujin's authority. Partly in response to this favorable omen, Temujin was elected as the Khan, or King, of the Mongols. What followed was sadly predictable. Jamukha, enraged and envious of Temujin's accomplishment, gathered a massive army the following year and attacked the new Khan. At the Battle of Dalan Balzut, Temujin and his forces suffered a rare defeat and were forced to flee before Jamukha's wrath. Records claim that many Mongol tribes and confederations which had formerly supported Tumajin now considered switching their allegiance to Jamukha. However, Jamukha soon alienated these would-be allies by revealing a cruel nature, boiling many of the war captives alive. The Jin dynasty to the southeast of Mongolia generally employed the strategy of supporting one group of Mongols against another, often switching sides mid-conflict if one faction was gaining too much of an upper hand. In 1197, the Jin requested the assistance of Tumajin and his armies in a joint attack against the Tatar Confederation. Tumajin assented, and the assault was a smashing success. Afterward, the Jin dynasty awarded him with official titles and recognition of his authority. In 1204, things came to a head with his old friend Jamukha. Having taken refuge in the nation of Karakitai, Jamukha and his followers assembled a Kuraltai, an electoral council of leaders, which named Jamukha the Gur Khan, or universal ruler, of the Mongols. Tumajin knew that an invasion would soon be underway, and he quickly assembled an army to defend the Mongol homelands. Both leaders gathered large coalition forces to their side, consisting of multiple tribes and confederations. However, Tumajin's meritocracy gave him a distinct advantage over his enemy. While Jamukha stuck his nose in the air at the idea of recruiting shepherds and other outcast people into his army, Tumajin actively sought out those with talent for fighting, regardless of social status. The two had their final showdown at the Battle of Chakirmaut, which was also called the Battle of Thirteen Sides. Although Jamukha and his coalition outnumbered Tumajin's forces, Tumajin ordered a massive charge which shook the confidence of his enemies. Jamukha's troops began fleeing and his allies, the Naamans, tried to form a defensive square formation, but this just made it possible for Tumajin's horse archers to surround them completely and whittle their numbers down with arrows before finally crushing them in another massive charge. Horse archery was the supreme method of combat in these times, and combined with Tumajin's strategic know-how, the Mongol horse archers gained a fearsome reputation, closely followed by that of the Mongol heavy cavalry, whose ferocious ground-shaking charges filled their opponents' hearts with sheer terror. The aftermath of the Battle of Chakirmaut was an absolute victory for Tumajin and his coalition. Jamukha fled but was captured and killed. The ruler of the Naamans, Tayang Khan, was killed in battle, and several generals who had served under Jamukha had abandoned him before the battle and submitted themselves before Tumajin, whom they acknowledged as their rightful ruler. Among these generals was a particularly clever Mongol named Subutai, who would serve Tumajin ably in the future and score a number of impressive victories of his own.
Subutai would go on to subdue many holdout tribes and confederations who rejected Tumujin's authority. While his pop culture reputation is one of a blood-soaked conqueror, Tumujin also utilized a rather interesting method of securing the loyalty of vassals and conquered factions alike. Marriage. Like the Japanese, Chinese, and Koreans of their time, the Mongols practiced polygamy, and marriage was often utilized as a means of making peace between warring tribes or confederations. Tumujin took this to an extreme by taking a bride from nearly every loyal group and made it a point to take noble or royal wives from those he had conquered as well. He did not generally engage in large-scale retribution against his defeated enemies, though he made an exception for Jamaka's home tribe. They were ordered to be measured against the linchpin, a common Mongol subjugation tactic in which all the men of a tribe were forced to walk in front of a large wagon wheel, and any who were taller than the linchpin at the center of the wheel were executed, leaving only young men and children alive. This was a brutal collective punishment, to be sure, but the idea was to prevent a hostile group from taking revenge. By 1206, thanks largely to the efforts and cleverness of Subutai, Tumujin was the only remaining Khan on the entire Mongolian plateau. Every leader of every group now under Tumujin's rule was called to a Kural Tai. The council named their larger confederation Mongols and elected Tumujin as their leader. He was given the new title of Genghis Khan, the ruler of all. I will refer to him as Genghis Khan for the duration of this episode and the next. The first target to blip the Great Khan's radar was the state of Western Xia, nestled to the south of the Mongolian Plateau and to the west of the Jin Dynasty. Western Xia was a Tangut-dominated state, which had existed in Central Asia since 1038. They controlled the Silk Road in that part of the world and reaped enormous economic benefits. Its government held most of the familiar trappings of a dynastic Chinese bureaucracy, but it also boasted a competent, innovative military, which helped them preserve their independence from both the Jin and Song dynasties. The Mongolian plains were part of their sphere of influence, and, like the Jin dynasty, they often sought to pit one group of barbarians against another. They had a particularly close relationship with the Kera'ites, and after Genghis Khan killed the Kera'ite leader Ong Khan in 1203, his son fled with his retainers into the waiting arms of the western Xia state. The Mongols committed a few cursory raids against western Xia territory, which were very successful, and even managed to win the fealty of a few Tangut nobles in the north. In 1207, after having been named ruler of the Mongols, Genghis Khan embraced the war effort with a renewed enthusiasm. It helped immensely that there had just been a coup in Western Shah, and the new emperor was not on good terms with any of their neighbors. After several years of smash-and-grab raids, Genghis Khan devised a plan with his generals to conquer and subdue Western Shah in 1209. Emperor Shangzong of Western Xia begged the Jin dynasty for military aid as Mongol armies began pouring into the country. As far as the Jin dynasty was concerned, this was a regional dispute between two enemy factions who were both also enemies of theirs. Let our enemies fight one another probably sounded like a reasonable policy stance in the Jin court, but it was something they would eventually come to regret. One of the strategies employed by Genghis Khan and his generals was the feigned retreat. Mongol forces would charge the enemy, 
fight them for a short while, then fall back in what looked like a rout. Their eager enemies would chase them while Mongol horse archers would thin them out by turning around in their saddles and loosing arrows into the pursuers. Eventually, the Mongol army would wheel around and charge their pursuers from both sides, usually from a predetermined location where cavalry had an advantage. The pursuers, exhausted from the chase, out of formation, and suddenly possessing far fewer numbers than before, would usually be defeated in fairly short order. This strategy of the fake retreat was as surprising as it was risky. As I understand it, most modern military commanders would not dare attempt the same for fear that the fake route would become very real. But it's good to remember that the Mongols didn't have to worry about long-range artillery, air support, or any number of things which a modern army would have to consider. At the fortress Kiemen, the Mongols were forced to stage a siege. After two months, they broke their camp and appeared to flee. The defending army charged out after them and the Mongols lured them into a trap. After crushing the western Shah army, which was said to be 70,000 strong, Genghis Khan led his forces through the mountain pass which Kiemen Fortress had been guarding and pressed straight on to Yinchuan, the capital of western Shah. Yinchuan was well defended, and the Mongols had already demonstrated their lack of expertise in matters of siege warfare. They encamped around Yinchuan in May of 1209, but their efforts at breaching the walls came to nothing. For over half a year, they waited, attempted assaults, defended against sorties, and all without progress. In January of the following year, they attempted to flood the capital by diverting water from a nearby irrigation canal into the city, but the levees broke under the pressure and flooded the Mongol camp instead, forcing them to higher ground. They were not, however, the only ones to suffer from the protracted siege. Life in the city was becoming more difficult, and Emperor Shangzong began to fear that one of his generals might attempt a coup against him, just as he had deposed his predecessor. He surrendered to the Mongols, agreeing to pay a hefty tribute and giving one of his daughters to be married to Genghis Khan. The Mongols were happy with this outcome. They didn't want to destroy Western Shah, only to use them as a tributary puppet state. Emperor Shangzong had no intention of forever remaining under the Mongols' thumb, but first he wanted to punish the Jin Dynasty for their refusal to help against the invaders. He started organizing a massive invasion force to raid and plunder the northern Chinese empire, but he would never get the chance to use it. In 1211, his nephew overthrew him in a coup and took the throne as Emperor Shenzong. The former emperor died a month later. The new emperor of Western Xia continued his uncle's policy of hostility with the Jin. Genghis Khan was only too happy to weaken the Jin dynasty with raids and plundering and to eventually crush them entirely. Throughout the early 1210s, Mongol armies as well as those of Western Xia pillaged and burned the territory of the Jin dynasty, while the Jin armies were eventually raised and crushed many of the western Shah forces, they were repeatedly routed and destroyed by the forces of Genghis Khan and his generals. In 1215, the Jin dynasty lost their capital city of Zhongdu, modern-day Beijing, and relocated their capital to Kaifeng. By this point, they had lost the northern half of their empire to the Mongols and were in continual defense and retreat from then on. 
1211, during the invasion of the Jin Dynasty lands, a Turkic group called the Karluks, living under the authority of Karakitai, rebelled against their masters and pledged their fealty to Genghis Khan. This would later give Genghis Khan a just cause for invading Karakitai in 1218, when an army from Karakitai attacked the Karluk city of Amalik. He dispatched a general named Jebe with 20,000 soldiers, and they made short work of the Khan of Karakitai, afterward placing a puppet dynasty upon the throne. Their presence in Karakitai, which corresponds roughly with modern-day Kazakhstan, gave the Mongols new enemies to fight on their borders, starting with the Khwarazmian Empire. The Khwarazmians occupied and controlled the region which roughly includes modern Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, western Afghanistan, and Iran. They were primarily Muslim, as was Karakitai. The Mongols fought against Muslims so often that for some time the people of Western Europe assumed that they were Christians. As a brief aside, many Mongols adhered to Nestorian Christianity, but almost none of them ever joined with the Roman Catholic strain, which is part of why the second season of the Marco Polo series on Netflix was so face-punchingly frustrating for us history-knowers. The campaign against Karakitai was basically a siege fest for the Mongols, who succeeded by entering the empire from an unexpected direction, evading or entrapping detachments from the Khwarazmian army, isolating various cities, and promising mercy for those who surrendered. Many of these cities tried to run the Mongols off with sorties from the defenders, who were swiftly outfought and crushed. The city of Otrar tried to wait the enemy out, and while this did result in a protracted siege, the Mongols made gradual progress against the defenders, and their leaders were confident enough of its eventual downfall that they began dispatching armies to besiege other cities throughout the heart of the Khwarazmian Empire. Otrar eventually fell, with its remaining defenders making a last desperate stand in its citadel. The war against the Khwarazmian Empire took only two years to conclude. In 1221, the last Shah of the Empire fled to India, leaving most of Persia and Transoxiana firmly in the grip of the Mongol Empire. This would enable future Khans to send armies into the Middle East where they would battle Syrians, Seljuk Turks, Egyptian Mamluks. North of Transoxiana, future Mongol armies would raid and conquer much of Eastern Europe. In 1223, a large Mongol force tasked with reconnaissance and raiding met with resistance at the Battle of Kalka River, in which a Mongol army utterly crushed the forces of the Kievan Rus. The Mongols fell back afterward, however, and would not return to that part of modern-day Ukraine until 1240. By the early 1220s, there was no question that Mongol power was on the rise. The only thing that might threaten it was internal division or rebellion of one of its client states. In 1217, Genghis Khan had asked Western Shah for troops to aid in their campaign against Karakitai, and Western Shah had refused. In 1219, the Mongols again requested troops to support their conquest of the Khwarazmian Empire, and again the Emperor of Western Shah said no. No doubt they were playing a dangerous game, but it's possible that the Western Shah leaders believed that Genghis Khan's luck would run out, and they would make a play for independence. Betting against Genghis Khan, however, would prove more costly than they likely imagined. In 1225, several Mongol armies descended into western Shah from the north, hoping to meet their enemy army in the field and fight a decisive battle. 
The commander of the Western Shah army, however, prepared his forces to defend the capital, Yinchuan, instead. The Mongols would have to travel through 500 miles of inhospitable desert if they took a direct route, and Genghis Khan decided that the safer approach was to march south, sacking and pillaging every encampment, town, settlement, and walled city in their path. Eventually, they neared Yinchuan, and the Western Shah army charged out to meet them, likely hoping that the long journey had taxed the Mongol army's strength. At the Battle of Yellow River, the two armies met in early winter 1226, fighting on a frozen portion of the Yellow River. The fighting was fierce, but by the time it had ended, the Mongols had triumphed once more, utterly crushing the Western Shah's army in the process. The siege of Yinshuan lasted almost a year, but in September of 1227, Emperor Moju surrendered and was executed soon afterward. The city itself was subjected to every cruelty the Mongol army could conceive, and few survived the destruction as the entire capital was laid to waste and plundered. The destruction of Western Shah was not limited to its capital and nobility. During the campaign, the Mongols engaged in such wanton cruelty that the Tongut people were nearly wiped out completely. Genghis Khan's campaign against them is considered an act of genocide, and indeed they were so thoroughly decimated by Mongol invaders that very few people outside of East Asian historical scholarship have even heard of Western Shah. Many of the survivors fled to Tibet, who welcomed them and incorporated one of their deities into the local Buddhist pantheon. The Tongut people were also largely Buddhist, so the adoption of Tibetan culture was at least that much smoother. Another important event that occurred during the Western Shah campaign was the death of Genghis Khan. Without question, he was one of the most important people in all of history, but we have no clear idea exactly how he died. Some accounts claim that he was killed by the Tonguts during the Battle of Yellow River. Others say the Western Shah princess whom he had married murdered him with a concealed dagger, and still others claim poison. He was 65 years old, so we can't exactly rule out illness either. His death was kept secret for fear that his army would abandon the siege in Yinchuan and revealed only after the Tonguts had been violently purged from the land. At the time of the Great Khan's death, the borders of the Mongol Empire touched the Pacific Ocean in the east and kissed the Caspian Sea in the west. In the wake of Genghis Khan's death, fears of a succession struggle arose. The Great Khan had three living sons, each serving in some capacity as a leader within the Mongol apparatus. Tradition made the youngest son the heir to his father, but Genghis Khan had chosen his third son, Ogade, to serve as Khan after his death. However, his youngest son, Tului, was at the head of a massive army in Mongolia, and the nobles recognized his authority on the matter. A showdown was averted in this case, and cooler heads prevailed. Tului governed the empire for a few years as a regent, and then called a Kurultai to elect a new great Khan. The council elected Ogade, the third son, and under his leadership the Mongols would annex all of the land of the Jin dynasty, much of the Caucasus including Georgia and Armenia, and come into direct conflict with Song China in the south. Next time, we will follow Genghis Khan's descendants as the Mongol Empire continued to conquer, explore what daily life was like under Mongol governance, and see what circumstances led to their conflict with Japan. Until then, thank you for listening. If you would like access to exclusive bonus episodes, as well as ad-free versions of the regular episodes, 
please consider supporting this podcast at patreon.com slash ahistoryofjapan.